come on a journey with a cinephile. Wake up, sucker. We're thieves and we're bad guys. That's exactly what we are. Episode number 68 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, your tour guide here of David Garrett Jr. recording out of Columbus, Ohio. And on this episode is going to be my women's appreciation number four here, as I'm going to have two featured reviews of movies that were directed by women, with the first one being Eve's Bayou, which is from, I believe, 1997 was the year that that movie was released. And then the other one is going to be a movie that should have came out last year, but is getting its now 2021 release of St. Maud. And then on top of that, I also have many reviews here for you of The Innocence, which also is my odyssey through the ones, as well as having a you know woman protagonist there. And then we also have Silent Hill, another one there where we have, I mean, two women are actually very strong, prominent roles on the good side of that one and there's also some villains there that are also women and then the last one is going to be behind the mask the rise of leslie vernon which that one also kind of you know follows the slasher tropes of having a final girl so those are all going to be the mini reviews that i have on this one i don't really have anything else i need to break down for you before i get into everything so let me kick you over to a musical break before i get into those mini reviews and i hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me Child with the blue 
take your time smell the flowers make a smile for yourself girl don't make living so hard so hard so hard I can tell myself feel like I'm going away sometimes it ain't it all damn fair a child with a blue yourself, protect yourself, face yourself, feel like my life is just existing, and I'm missing someone. Cause my love is gone, gone on. Never too young to pay your dues. And if you're walking in my shoes, you're a child with blues. So
And for my first mini-review of this week is going to be The Innocence from 1961. This is directed by Jack Clayton. It comes from the story based from Henry James of The Turn of the Screw. The screenplay is written by William Archibald and Truman Capote, with some additional scenes and dialogue done by John Mortimer. This stars Deborah Kerr, Peter Wingardi, and Megs Jenkins. This is a horror film that is from the United Kingdom. It is currently sitting on a 7.8 on IMDb and a 4.1 on Letterboxd, with our synopsis here being a young governess for two children becomes convinced that the house and grounds are haunted. Now, this is a film that I'm pretty sure my mother introduced me to. It would have been right after college when I would have seen this for the first time, and I thought it was solid. It wasn't until after the fact that I learned that it was based off of the novella from James, which, before the second viewing, I have now read. I've seen a more modern take on this source material as well. Now, where I want to start with this is that getting into podcasts really helped me to appreciate this movie more. I came into it late, as I said, having my first viewing after college, and there are many people that I listen to and respect their opinions that have grown up with this movie. And, you know, having also read the source material does help me fill in a little bit more for this movie and give me more enjoyment. Now, what I really want to start with is the character of Miss Gibbons, who is portrayed by Kerr. This movie is a character study of her, really. The details that I've given about her in the beginning are done in a subtle way, and I found this interesting in that she is very nervous and is unhinged almost from the beginning, and I picked up on how she answers questions from the uncle who is portrayed by Michael Redgrave that she's just nervous by nature. She also isn't truly prepared to take on this role that she has offered. I can connect with that feeling for sure. The uncle doesn't seem to notice and has a real big stance on how to handle everything at the Manor out in Bly, and he just doesn't want to be bothered with it. Those are his expressed wishes. I think that contributes to the madness that Miss Gibbons sinks into. Now, the madness that she's dealing with is where I want to go next. As I said, Kurt does an excellent job with her performance. Seeds are planted that cause her to have this breakdown that she does. Miss Gibbons hearing from the uncle that Miss Jessel who, when we get to see her in this movie, is portrayed by Clyde T. Jessup. Now, she's the former governess that died, and her hearing about this, and then when she gets to the manor, hearing someone who is calling Flora's name. Now, Flora is portrayed by a young Pamela Franklin. Now, she ends up hearing somebody calling out to this young girl's name. She assumes that it's a Mrs. Gross, who in this movie is portrayed by Jenkins. And then there's a moment where she sees a man. Now, at first, she can't see his face. The more that she learns about this Peter Quint, who is, in this movie, Vingardi. Now, once she realizes and learns about him as well as Miss Jessel, the more she's convinced that these specters that she is seeing are these two people. It is interesting, though, that in regards to Quint, she doesn't know about him until after she sees the male on the tower. I like how this makes us question if there could be something supernatural here or not. I do think that after a second viewing and reading the novel, I'm pretty confident and I think I know what's happening here. I don't want to go into spoilers, but what I wanted to relay is that I like what they're doing without force feeding us, and it still explains it. Now, since I've already covered Kerr's performance, I want to go into the rest of the acting. Jenkins as Miss Gross works for me. She is quite nice to our main character of Miss Gibbons, and they seem to get along well. It isn't until Miss Gibbons starts to become erratic that their relationship is strained. Despite what Miss Gibbons states, she doesn't seem to have the children's best interest at heart like Mrs. Gross does. Franklin does a really good job as Flora for me. She's quite young and her performance worked. Same thing would be for Martin Stevens, who portrays her brother of Miles, and I will give more credit to his devious nature he has. Vingardi and Jessup do a really good job as these specters. They really don't do a whole lot except staring straight ahead, but it is quite creepy, and the rest of the cast worked for what was needed as well. 
Now, something I wanted to briefly go over here would be the effects. We really don't get a lot of them in this movie, but with the era that it came out and the story that we were getting, it doesn't need them. I think the cinematography is strategic and not showing details of Quint until Miss Gibbon sees a picture of him. Showing them at a distance through windows or having other things to obscure them, like reflecting of sunlight. The setting works with the gothic atmosphere that we're getting here as well. So the last thing I want to go into would be the soundtrack. For the most part, the selections fit to help enhance the scenes. What I really wanted to go over would be the reoccurring song that is used throughout. It starts with Flora humming it, as well as singing, and then we get to learn that it's from a music box that belonged to Miss Jessel. Now there's another scene where Miles is playing this on the piano. I think this is well done to have a haunting feel that Miss Gibbons has as this movie goes along as she is descending into her psychosis. So in conclusion here, I will admit, I like this movie after the first viewing, but it's the second one and having read the source material that makes it better than I remembered. The performance from Kerr really carries this movie with the rest of the cast pushing her to where she ends up. How would a shot really makes things creepier than it should be? And the soundtrack also helps there as well. The gothic atmosphere of the setting also helps on top of that. It really is a movie that makes you question, is this place being haunted by these ghosts or these two former workers? Or is it Miss Gibbons, you know, having a nervous breakdown? Or is it both? I do think we get a conclusion that works as well. For me, this is a good movie and one that I would gladly revisit again. So my rating for The Innocence from 1961 is an 8 out of 10. For my second review, I have Silent Hill from 2006. This is directed by Christoph Gans. This is written by Roger Avery. It stars Rada Mitchell, Laurie Holden, and Sean Bean. This is an action-adventure fantasy horror mystery film that is a co-production between France and Canada. It is currently sitting on a 6.5 on IMDb and a 3.0 on Letterboxd, with our synopsis being a woman, Rose, goes in search for her adopted daughter within the confines of a strange, desolate town called Silent Hill. Now, this is a movie that I was excited when I first heard about. I remember being in college and going to see it when it hit theaters. I was a big fan of the video game and wanted to see what they could do with adapting it to the screen. Now, I've seen this a handful of times throughout the years, but this is the first time with a critical eye. Now, where I first want to start off here would be, you know, breaking this movie down to compare it to the source material just a little bit. I really like the first game, and I've played the second one a little bit. They are pretty creepy, to be honest, and I think the movie does well in capturing that atmosphere. The story, from what I remember, doesn't really match up, and if it does, it is probably something more akin to one of the later sequels and not necessarily the original. I'm fine with that, though. I do like here that the world changes from where, you know, what we see things. And I remember in the game that you had to discover a doorway to go to the dark world to see that type of thing. Like, if you're in, like, a school, you know, there's a darker, creepier version of it. I think what they do in this movie works a little bit better for that. Now, the crux of this movie is really that we have Sharon, who's portrayed by Jodel Ferlin, is, you know, being drawn to Silent Hill. Christopher, who is portrayed by Bean, believes it is a bad idea to take her there, where Rose, who is Rada Mitchell, thinks that it could help. Sharon then disappears, and Rose is being led on this hunt to find her. During her search, we learn more about the history of the town and its people. Rose does end up teaming up with Sybil, who is Holden, and, you know, as we see that she realizes that Rose isn't a bad person like she thought originally. They come in contact with Adalia Gillespie, who's portrayed by Deborah Kara Unger. Now, she's been shunned by the people in the town. And then there's also, like, Anna, who is Tanya Allen. And then there's a leader of this cult that's at the center of everything, who is Christabella, who's portrayed by Alice Krieg. Now, the more that we learn about here, the more I get sucked into what they're doing. Now, there's also this Officer Gucci, who is portrayed by Kim Coates. You know, and Christopher also kind of looking into some things here that help it to fill in more of the backstory. 
Now, I really like the social commentary this movie is playing with. There is this cult that is following a harsh version of Christianity. They actually would burn witches and thinking that they were preventing the apocalypse. The last one that they do actually ruins their town as the fire gets into the mines below. I love that they're incorporating this as this is something real in West Virginia where there is a ghost town where the mines below have got caught on fire and it's still burning to the day because there's still all this coal down there. Now, Silent Hill is also in a suspended type of limbo because of what happened, and I think this is something that really is cool to play with. I will admit, though, the ending used to confuse me. I'm not sure I fully grasp it still, even after all these viewings, but there is something I picked up on this time that makes a lot more sense to me. What is interesting here, though, is seeing how someone who is a religious zealot like Christabella can influence those around her to do bad things. They're weak-minded, and she has a strong personality, which is a recipe for disaster for this cult. Now, speaking of her, I will go to the acting next. I think that Mitchell does a really good job here as Rose. She is a good woman and wants to help her adopted child, but what she decides to do might not be the best thing. She is willing to try anything, though. Being as solid as her counterpart and, you know, is on the opposite side of everything. I like that he will stop at nothing, though, to find them. Holden is good as his tough cop who will protect, you know, Sharon slash Alessa no matter what happens. Unger, Coates, and Alan are all solid as well. The ones that really steal the show for me, though, are Krieg and Furland. The farmer does so well as being this crazy religious leader. It is also crazy how close this came out to the Mist, as we have very similar characters here, and I think both these actresses do well in this, you know, position that caused problems. Furland is also really good here despite her age at the time. I like that Sharon is nice and sweet, you know, just troubled. She gets to play this dual role as the more villainous Alessa, who has been wronged and wants revenge. Now, the rest of the cast rounds us out for what was needed as well. Now, I want to go here to the effects, which I think we get an interesting blend of practical and CGI. I like how bloody this movie went. We get to see some really good practical effects with this. The CGI is hit or miss for me, but there are some things that look really good and I'm impressed. Now, there are other times where it just doesn't really hold up. Now, what I will give credit here, though, is the cinematography. I love that the director of Gans took some interesting angles and shots straight from the games and incorporated them into the movie. I thought it was a really good touch there. Then the last thing would be the soundtrack. I don't think it's as strong as some of the games, but I'll be honest. I have this score saved on my computer. I like the creepy vibe that they go for with it. The siren is also quite effective, and at first I didn't remember how it was going off, but it makes a lot more sense when we see the reveal there. So in conclusion, I think that this is a solid take on the video game series. They are taking elements from a few different installments from my understanding while also doing their own thing and it works. There are some interesting elements here from reality as well as an interesting social commentary on religion along with its leaders. I thought the acting was good across the board. The practical effects worked along with the set pieces and the cinematography and the soundtrack. Some of the CGI also did, but there are some of those that don't hold up as well. Overall, I would say that I still enjoyed this movie. I think it is an above average one, hovering just below being good in my opinion. I still think it's worth a watch if you've never seen it or it's been a while. So my rating here for Silent Hill is a 7.5 out of 10. And then my last mini review for this week is going to be Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon. This is directed by Scott Glosserman, who also co-wrote this with David J. Steve. This is starring Nathan Basil, Angela Gerthals, and Zelda Rubinstein. This is a comedy horror thriller from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.7 on IMDb and a 3.5 on Letterboxd, with our synopsis here being, 
The next great psycho horror slasher has given a documentary crew exclusive access to his life as he plans his reign of terror over the sleepy town of Glen Echo. Now this is another film that I checked out as I believe for the first time as part of the Fangoria's top 300 horror movie issue. I was trying to fill in you know, some gaps in movies that I had never seen before. I don't think I've heard about it before that and I've seen it a couple times now. It is another one that I got into hearing more about it when I got into listening to horror movie review podcast and then this viewing here was due to the podcast Under the Stairs Summer Challenge series for the 2000s. So I have to say after that first watch I love some of the aspects of this movie. One of the first things is stating that the many of the horror legends that were real and that you know all know each other on top of that i love they do all of the you know following a similar plan which if you look at it at the films would make sense this movie does a really good job for me in setting this world up that we are living in before you know peeking behind the curtain as i've said now this is really two different movies that are combined into one the first part is a mockumentary done in the vein of a found footage film taylor who is portrayed by gerthals sets the stage with her opening monologue as i've said in this part it is mostly you know leslie who is portrayed by basil and her we you know along with the other people in her crew of doug and todd who are ben pace and Britton spellings and really they're just kind of interjecting at different points at times i also like the information that is provided by doc halloran who's portrayed by robert england who's kind of our Dr. Loomis of sorts. And we also have Eugene, who's portrayed by Scott Wilson. There is Jamie, who is portrayed by Bridget Newton. And then even Mrs. Collinwood, who is portrayed by Rubenstein, who's a librarian that helps the character of Kelly, who is portrayed by Kate Miner. Now, this is all helping to fill in kind of backstory and information. This part really feels like, you know, watching a slasher movie being made, but from behind the scenes. Now, the second half of the movie is a normal one that is a slasher. It is smart, though, and I think what is you know helps to make it work leslie has shown us his initial plan but much like scream this takes a meta approach where despite the characters knowing things have been changed to incorporate the new elements i give credit to the depth of planning and knowing from leslie there now that meta approach brings me to something else that i wanted to delve into really quick i said that i love that they state that jason freddie and michael are all real and are legends chucky gets brought up as another killer briefly as well there is some realism that is lost with the latter and I don't feel this movie, you know, it's a bit odd just accepting these killers and that this crew would follow somebody who wants to be in the same vein if they know that he's planning to do these things. Like, they know that they're real. I don't know if Taylor truly believes that Leslie is going to do what he says or not, but Doug and Todd seem to, and they seem to be on board. I feel like this could be a commentary on us as an audience that we know what we're going to see is these horrific things, but we're complacent in it as entertainment. Regardless, the co-writer of Steve and the you know co-writer and director of Glosserman really know their slashers and this works there. I'm not sure this movie would be as good if it wasn't for the acting. I'm not saying anyone here is going to win awards, but Basil was really good to me as Leslie. It is interesting as I believe that this is his first acting role in a feature. I love how charismatic he is when things are going good and then turns on being a monster when it becomes time for that. He's a likable guy, so I can see why this crew wants to be around him as he looks into everything that he is. Gerthals is solid as Taylor, and I love the what the movie does with her character. I love the cameos by England, Wilson, Rubenstein, and even briefly Kane Hodder. Newton and Miner are also attractive, and I love how their characters fit into the story, and then pace and spellings are also helped to round this out for me as well. So that'll take me to the last thing that I wanted to go over would be the effects and cinematography. 
Where I want to start would be the latter, though. As I said, the first part of this is a mockumentary. It does feel like we're getting a legit doc on Leslie Vernon. It all feels real, including interviews, and it also feels like we're seeing how a slasher film is made on top of it. What actually you know, becomes a slasher, I do feel the effects are good. I'm assuming some of this would be budget, but we don't actually get to see a lot of the kills or much in the blood you know, gore category. I am forgiving here, though, due to how things lead up and eventually play out. But I would say the cinematography overall is just well done. So in conclusion here, this movie keeps getting better and better for me with each viewing. I really like the concept here of doing a mockumentary on a new killer that is trying to join the likes of the legends. Basil's take on Leslie Vernon is what really makes this work for me, and I love the meta approach this movie taking, you know, to the slasher genre. The rest of the cast helps to get this, you know, to bring it to life. And the effects are a bit light, but the found footage stuff works. The soundtrack fit for what was needed, and I've come up on my last viewing with my rating here, which I think, you know, this is a good movie. If you haven't seen this one and you're a slasher fan, I would definitely recommend giving this a viewing. This is also interesting if you enjoy seeing how filmmaking is done, as that is part of it as well. So my rating here for Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon, is going to be an 8 out of 10. So that's all I have for mini reviews here, so what I'm going to go ahead and do, though, is get you over to the trailer of my first featured review. Memory is a selection of images, some elusive, others printed indelibly on the brain. Daddy loves you so much. I know. We'll dance at every party. Each image is like a thread, each thread woven together to make a tapestry of intricate texture. When I first met Lewis, I said to myself, he's a healer, he'll take care of me. Do you still love her? Men fought each other for the privilege of speaking her name. And the tapestry tells a story. And I find out he's just a man. You're in trouble. They're really mad. Who, them? <laughs> they always mad. And the story is our past. I'll never forgive you if you drive him away. The summer I killed my father, I was 10 years old. I saw Daddy. What? Daddy and Mrs. Moreau. What's wrong with her? Oh, she'll be all right. Have you told anyone? Because if you tell, I swear I'll do you harm. You know I love my sister, but she's not unfamiliar with the inside of a mental hospital. Sunday, which one of your patients you're gonna see, Louis? What was wrong with that lady? Uh, some illness hard to put a finger on. Not every night he's not working. I know he's not. She thinks I'm driving you away. She's a child, Rob. How do you kill someone with Rudy? I put his head inside the wax coffin. Buried it in the graveyard. That's ridiculous. You want to face the dead. But you can't kill people with voodoo. Sometimes a soldier fall on his own sword. Yes. You speak to my wife with that, and I will kill you. Oh, God. No! And for my first featured review here is going to be Eve's Bayou from 1997. This is written and directed by Cassie Lemons. It stars Samuel L. Jackson, Journey Smollett, and Megan Good. And then also appearing in this movie is Lynn Whitfield, Debbie Morgan, Jake Smollett, Ethel Ayler, Diana Carroll, 
Vondi Curtis Hall, Roger Governor Smith, Lisa Nicole Carson, Bradford Marsalis, Afonda Colbert, Lola Delferis, and Marcus Lyle Brown. This is technically a drama film, but I will get into a little bit why I'm including this here. And this is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a a 7.3 on IMDb and a 3.8 on Letterboxd, with our synopsis here being what did little Eve see and how will it haunt her? Husband, father, and womanizer Louis Batiste is the head of an affluent family, but it's the woman who ruled this gothic world of secrets, lies, and mystic forces. Now, this is a movie that I'll be honest, I had never heard of until I watched the documentary Horror Noir, A History of Black Horror. Now, I do remember when they were discussing this movie that it might not be fully considered horror. It isn't even listed on the IMDb or Letterboxd as that. I still decided to give it as a watch to honoring black and women in cinema for February. And I'll kind of delve into a little bit more while I'm also including it here. And I mean, one of the things actually is in the synopsis as this gothic world of secrets is this does kind of feel like some of those older novels that have a little bit of twinge of horror that we would get from like the Bronte sisters, but we're just setting it in a different area. And I will delve into that as well here shortly. But first, I just have some featured notes. But as a director, Lemons has seven movies to her credit. The clo- This is the closest to horror that she has done. And then... As a writer, she's only penned four films, and again, this is the closest one to being a horror movie. Journey Smollett has been in 15 movies as an actress. Much like the writer and director, she has avoided the horror genre. This would probably be the closest as well. And I've also seen her in the movie Jack when she was a little girl, not too long after this movie. And then Birds of Prey. I mean, that was actually just a year or two ago. Now, as for Megan Good, she has 46 acting credits. She's actually been in some horror movies, like the movie Venom was the first that she was in from 2005, which I haven't seen. She was in the One Missed Call remake, Saw 5 and The Unborn, and I've seen her in Friday, Anchorman 2, Shazam, and The Intruder. Then there's Jackson. He's one of the most watched actors of all time in that I have, according to Letterboxd, and he's actually now beating Christopher Lee by 10 films. Now, I do have to go through Lee's just to make sure that I haven't missed anything on his, but a lot of this is due to the Avenger films where he just kind of has a cameo, but he is a great actor who has been in a lot. At the time of recording this, he has 202 films. He has done seven actual horror movies total. Death by Temptation was from 1990 was the first, but I haven't seen that. He was in The Exorcist 3, Deep Blue Sea, and 1408, which I've seen all of those. Now, there is also the other Stephen King adaptation of Cell that I haven't seen, and he's in the upcoming movie Spiral from The Book of Saw, and The Blob seems to be getting another remake that he is in, according to Letterboxd. Now, we start this movie in the past. I don't believe it ever fully tells us, but I'm assuming it's in the 1940s or the 1950s at the latest, looking at the fashion and how people are acting. We are getting some voiceover narration from Tamara Tunney, who is filling in on the location that we're going to be in, and which is Eve's Bayou is actually the name of the area, and it's named after a freed slave by the name of Eve, who saved a rich white man of the area by the last name of Baptiste. The two end up becoming married, and many of the residents are now are her descendants, as she had a lot of children. Now, we also learn that this is the summer where a character named Eve, who was named after the famous slave, killed her father when she was 10 years old. And then this is going to be portrayed by a young Smollett. Now, we are then at a party. It is here that we get to meet many of the major players. The patriarch of the family is Lewis, portrayed by Jackson. He's a local doctor and descended from Eve. He is married to Roz, portrayed by Whitfield. They have three children, with the oldest being Cicely, portrayed by Megan Good. Then we have Eve, and then Poe, who is actually portrayed by 
Journey Smollett's actual real-life little brother of Jake. Now, there's some dancing and boozing going on, and everyone just seems to be having a good time. Then it all takes a turn when Eve gets upset with her father, who pays more attention to Cicely. She flees to the carriage house, where she ends up falling asleep. She gets awoken by her father out there with a Maddie Miro, who is portrayed by Carson. She sees them having sex, and this upsets her. She doesn't necessarily know what she sees, though, and it ends up causing her to, you know, kind of question some things. Now, the problem ends up becoming, though, that what she relays to what she saw to her sister Cicely, she tells her some things that makes Eve question her own memories. And then being in Louisiana, this movie is dealing a lot in voodoo, fortune-telling, and more pagan beliefs. Louis' sister is Moselle Baptiste Delacroix, who is portrayed by Debbie Morgan, and we learn that she's cursed. She believes that she is barren, she has no children of her own, and is a widower to three husbands. Things also take a turn when there is this El Zora, who is portrayed by Diana Carroll. She's a local voodoo priestess who also tells fortunes and relays an impending tragedy to Roz and Moselle. Things are also complicated when Lewis is staying out long hours, you know, seeing patients. It all ends with a some mismatched memories, dark magic, and death. So that's where I'm going to leave my recap of the movie. And the first thing I want to delve into here is why I'm including this in my horror movie research. This movie is a drama for sure. Definitely a family one on top of that. I would consider this movie, though, to be adjacent to the horror genre due to the fact that we're getting things like voodoo, a feeling of dread that grows, and how everything ends up is dark. I will say, though, this doesn't have the feel of the horror movie that many look for. It really, like I said, is a family drama, and I acknowledge that. From there, though, we are getting some relative things here that, despite this movie being set in the past and being almost made 25 years ago, is still relevant. We are following a prominent black man. I'm assuming here he has a bit of family money, but he's also a doctor. He's a good man, has a lovely family. He is a bit full of himself, though. His mother of Granmere, portrayed by Ayler, acknowledges this from the opening sequence at the party. Lewis does has his problem with drinking, and he's a womanizer. It is something that's more widely accepted for the era the movie takes place. I don't like it, but I get it. Going along with this idea of the family, I want to delve into here what the synopsis states about the women having power here. Roz runs this household. She can't tell Lewis what to do, but that's not to say she is weak either. Moselle is a strong woman who, despite losing three husbands, is able to take care of herself. Grandmere is strong-willed. Then there's also El Zora, who might have a great power in what she does, with forces that many will ignore in a more modern world. Cicely is also interesting here. When Eve relays what she sees, she tells her that's not what she saw. Memories are something that aren't the most reliable, but this idea does come into play for the ending as well. And the last aspect of the story that I want to explore here would be that of voodoo. It is interesting that Lewis doesn't believe, but I mean, he's a doctor and a man of science. Moselle doesn't practice voodoo herself, but she does dabble a bit. We see a patient of Lewis who tells him that his treatments are working from the medication he's given her. We know that she actually visited Moselle who gave her something else that could be helping her. Personally, I don't believe in religion or pagan beliefs like this. What I do believe in, though, is that if you believe hard enough in something, it can have a psychosomatic response. So I do enjoy the idea here of exploring how this voodoo could be helping these people potentially. Now, this movie doesn't have the deepest story to it, but I think it's because we have deep characters here. Smollett does an excellent job as this young girl. She is messing around in an adult world and takes on blame for things that in the end she shouldn't. It would depend on the belief system. And then being how she is young, she lacks a bit of respect at times that I liked for the character. Megan Good is also a complicated character and her performance works. 
Whitfield and Morgan are tragic in different ways for the trauma that they endure. I even like Jackson here. He brings a natural arrogance to the role. He isn't a bad guy, but he's doing some horrible things in my opinion. I did like the cameos by Jake Smollett, Ayler, Carol, Curtis Hall, Roger Governor Smith, and Carson. Along with the rest of the cast, they really rounded this out for what they needed and get characters where they needed to end up. So really the last thing I want to, want to go into here would be the cinematography and soundtrack. For the former, this movie is shot very well. We don't get anything in the way of effects for the most part, but it isn't that type of movie. What I did like was the playing with dreams. Eve is gifted with the ability to sight like her namesake or her aunt, but what we get here that the colors are flipped to be darker than it should be when we see these images, but I think this is an interesting thing to not give things away while also kind of giving us a little bit of information that's going to come back into play later. And the soundtrack also fit for what this movie needed in my opinion. And then just some bits of trivia that I wanted to share while I had them here. According to the writer and director of Lemons, her cut differed severely from the final cut that was released at theaters, which eliminated an entire major character from the movie, which I am kind of curious as to what happened there. Journey and Jake are real life brother and sister and they play siblings here in the movie. Ebert named this film as his best of 1997 in his book Awake in the Dark from 2006, was selected to the Library of Congress in, in 2018 for preservation in the National Film Registry for being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant, appeared on Entertainment Weekly's list of the 50 best movies you've never seen back from July 16th, 2012 edition. In the film Moselle, has previously had three different husbands and is about to marry a new one. In real life, she has had four husbands as well. Deborah Cox's music video, Nobody's Supposed to Be Here, was filmed on the main property as its director, Darren Grant, was a big fan of this movie here. And then the last thing is that Journey received a critical acclaim and Critics' Choice Award for playing Eve as well. So in conclusion here, I think this is a beautiful movie with a story that has some darker elements. It is interesting that we're hearing about events of the past from the point of view of a child that is harboring guilt. Like I've said though, the story isn't the most complex, but we're getting deep characters that are interacting and that is what makes this more, you know, complex in my opinion. I really like the look at the modern world while having some more pagan beliefs as well. I don't think this movie is for everyone. It isn't really horror, but it's adjacent enough for me thanks to some of the darker elements they incorporated. I would say this is a good movie and one that I will revisit again now that I have seen it and know how things play out just to see if I pick up on anything that I might have missed from that first viewing. So my rating here for Eve's Bayou is an 8 out of 10. I'm not going to do a spoiler section. I think I've kind of delved into everything I really wanted to here for this review. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to the trailer of my second featured review. Dear God, your presence graces the air and soon everyone will see. Hi, are you Maud? Yes, hi. It takes nothing special to mop up after the dying. You're prettier than the last one. But to save a soul, that's quite something. Bless Amanda's body and bless her mind, which is shrouded in darkness. When you pray, do you get a response? Oh, it's like he's physically in me. It's how he guides me. My little savior. Hey, I thought that was you. What are you up to? I'm a private carer. You're still nursing? What? Well, they know what happened. All the good girls go to hell. Cause even got herself. I just want to see you loosen up. I've got more important things on my mind. 
There's my little safe. Maud, he isn't real. <laughs> Nothing worthwhile comes easily. The good girls go to You must be the loneliest girl I've ever seen. I'm ready and open. And I feel fuller of your love than ever before. I have a responsibility. Oh, yes, of course. This is life and death on another level. If I'm getting it all wrong. All the good girls go to and then my second featured review is going to be Saint Maud from 2019. This is written and directed by Rose Glass. It stars Morfred Clark, Jennifer Ela, and Lily Knight. And then also being featured in this movie is Lily Frazier, Turlo Converi, Rosie Sampson. Marcus Hutton, Carl Prekoff, Noah Bodner, Takashuna Mukai, Jell Dijal, Joanna Richardson, Jonathan Milshaw, Fiona Thompson, and Sonia Varas. This is a horror film, along with being a drama and mystery from the United Kingdom, that is currently sitting on a 6.9 on IMDb. Nice. And a 3.7 on Letterboxd. With our synopsis here being, we are following a pious nurse who becomes dangerously obsessed with saving the soul of her dying patient. Now, this is one of the more anticipated films that I had for 2020, but then due to the COVID pandemic that happened, this, of course, got pushed back into 2021, where Jamie and I watched it at home through a streaming service of Epics as part of our Valentine's Day plans. It was a bummer that we couldn't make it to the theater because I'm pretty sure the Gateway Film Center would have been showing this, but still glad that we finally got to view this movie. And then before I jump into it, let me do some featured notes really quick. Much like in my first review of this episode, like the featured review, the writer-director here of Glass doesn't have a lot in genre. She's only actually ever directed five films. Unlike her counterpart, though, this is a horror movie and only one in genre that I've seen so far. And then the only movie I've ever seen from her as well. Then she has also written all of the films that she has directed on top of that. Did want to share that little piece that of that information. And then this movie, our star of Clark, has appeared in 17 films. Of those, I've seen two, including this one here. Now, she first was in Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. And then the other one was the movie Crawl, which I didn't actually know she was in, but I did like that movie. Her co-star of Ela has been in 54 movies as an actress. Surprisingly, this is the only horror film that she has done. Now, I have seen her, though, in The King's Speech, The Adjustment Bureau, Contagion, which that's borderline horror there with just how realistically they are showing how a pandemic can just decimate the planet, which is kind of weird what we're living through now. And then she was also in The Ides of March, Zero Dark Thirty, the Robocop remake, along with Fifty Shades of Grey and Fifty Shades Freed. And then The Actress of Night, this is the only acting credit for her to date. So we start this movie in an interesting way of introducing us to our main character. She goes by the name of Maud, and this is portrayed by Clark, but we later get revealed that her real name is actually Katie. Something happened while she was working at a hospital and it resulted in a patient dying. To get back on her feet, Maud has taken a job as a hospice nurse for a former dancer and choreographer by the name of Amanda, portrayed by Ela. 
I did want to include here that hospice might be a little bit different in the UK where this actually takes place from what Jamie was telling me because some of the exercises and different like treatment she's doing isn't necessarily what you do with a hospice patient in the United States. Now, Amanda has cancer and the care that she's getting could be, you know, to prolong her life if she wants that. But we kind of see that she might not necessarily be on board, especially since the quality of life might not actually be there anymore. Now, the two have a bit of a rocky start where Amanda is mocking Maud. The more that they spend time together, the more Amanda starts to buy into some of the things that her more religious nurse is doing. It does come off as mocking at first, as I was saying, but she does seem to get some reprieve for some of the things that she's doing as well. Now, I've personally started doing a little bit of yoga, and I will say that I can kind of feel a difference from doing it. Not that I necessarily buy into all the concepts of it, but I will say is that some of that stretching does give me a kind of head clearing thing. So I could see that if Amanda is actually buying into some of this religious stuff, it might actually be helping her. And I'll kind of get into where I kind of go with that here in a little bit as well. Now, Amanda has a young woman named Carol who is portrayed by Frazier that visits her. I thought at first she was a prostitute, but it does seem that she's more of like a sugar baby where she's kind of getting an allowance for coming over and doing, you know, sexual things with Amanda. Now, Maude tells her to stop coming around as she's interfering with the saving of Amanda's soul at this critical time in her life. Now, Maude has her fall from grace due to this. Amanda mocks her at a party in front of her guests, and this causes her to strike out and actually hit Amanda. Maude, of course, loses her job and seems to lose her purpose as well. Through Joy, who is portrayed by Knight, a former co-worker, it seems that Maude used to be a bit wild and then had this psychotic break at work. She has turned to religion, which did seem to help. We see that Maud could be possibly being visited by a religious presence, like could this be an angel, could this be God, which Amanda seemed to feel as well at one point, or is she just having another mental breakdown? Now that's why I'll leave my recap of this movie. What really intrigued me here coming into this is when I actually saw the trailer for this. I tried to avoid them whenever possible, but this one I couldn't help as I went to see some movies with Jamie before everything shut down. I also saw that it had a low running time of 84 minutes. Now what I'm getting at here is that there isn't a lot to the story, but it is really kind of about this young woman and her mental state. And that is where I'm going to start here. Despite this movie's short running time, I think it does really good with giving us backstory without force feeding it and filling in gaps with things that we're seeing. Like we know that there's a mental break and something horrific has happened pretty early on involving Maud. It is interesting is that this is the first thing we learn about her. Clark's performance as this character really sells it as well. She comes off as mousy and not confident, and I mean, there is good reason there. She has her religion, which gives her strength, but it doesn't help that she is mocked for it. And then there's this mental instability here for sure. Now, there's this idea that Maud could be visited by an angel, god, or even a demon. What I think works here is how it is presented. Maud has these moments where her skin will pull, distorting how she looks. It does feel like an unseen entity is doing this. Jamie brought up the good point here that she could be having a seizure. Regardless, I like that this only happens when no one else can see it. She does also hear a voice that seems to be speaking in Latin, but I end up learning here pretty recently that it is actually Welsh, and this is all pretty unnerving. To add to her religious experiences, Maud is doing things that harm her physically. This makes me think of like St. Thomas More, who felt that he had to be in constant pain and that was the only way to get closer to God. Now, we get some pretty cringy things here that were effective for me. I do like that, in the end, this movie gives you a look at the truth and it completed it for me. Since I've already talked about Clark's performance, I want to shift over to the rest of the cast. 
This is really a character study of Maud, with those around her pushing to where she ends up. Ela is solid as this woman who seemed to have everything but has given up on life due to her failing health. Maud wants to help her. The problem is that she doesn't want to help herself. She wants to enjoy the pleasures of life and just give up. Knight gives us a glimpse into the old Maud, or I guess I should say Katie. Now there's an interesting scene here where Maud reaches out to her and she's unable to come out with her to get a drink. Now this sinks our main character into more of a depression and then Frasier is good in causing stress in Maud's life that leads her to her downfall as well. Now the rest of the cast also just kind of helps round this out in my opinion. Now where I want to go next would be the effects. We actually get a fair amount but the movie doesn't necessarily rely on them. There are some practical ones, like when Maud, you know, puts some things into her shoes. This is aided by sound design, actually, as well. Now, the movie does use CGI, but it's really just kind of accentuate things. If I study it, I'm sure I could, you know, pick it apart and tell, you know, what was done with computers, but how they used it was effective for me. Overall, I'd say this is well done in building more of the horror elements. Now, the cinematography, especially for the ending sequence, was well done on top of that. And then I also already kind of said it, but I think the sound design and the music selections, you know, fit for what was needed. And then just a couple bits of trivia here is the director, Rose Glass, won the IWC Schelfhausen Filmmaker Bursary Award for this, which was presented to her by Danny Boyle. And then the other one is... Clark starred in Pride and Prejudice and Zombies in 2016, while her co-star of Ela starred in the BBC series Pride and Prejudice back in 1995. So in conclusion here, I tried my hardest not to come in with high expectations, but regardless, there were some there. I think this movie gave me exactly what I wanted it to. We are towing the line where it's whether we're having something supernatural is happening, or is this someone who just has a mental break? I think the performance from Maude really kind of sells everything here on either side of the explanation. The rest of the acting helps to push us to where it ends up, and I think the effects were effective. The sound design and soundtrack worked for me, and so this is a good movie in my opinion. It will be one that I plan on re-watching before the end of the year to see where I ultimately fall for it. So my rating here for St. Maud is going to be a 9 out of 10, and I'm not going to do a spoiler section since this movie, you know, I want people to actually watch this and not have everything spoiled for them. So what I'm going to go ahead and do, though, is since I'm not going to do that spoiler section, I'm going to get you over to a musical break before I close out the show. My Lucifer is lonely Standing there, killing time Can't commit to anything but a crime Leaders on vacation An open invitation Animals Evidence, pearly gates look more like a picket fence Once you get inside, I've got friends but can't invite them Hills burn in California, my turn to ignore ya Don't say I didn't want ya All the good girls go to hell Cause even got herself as enemies and once the water starts to rise and heaven's out of sight she'll want the devil on her team my lucifer is lonely look at you needing me you know I'm not your friend without some greenery Walking wearing feathers Peter should know better Your cover up is caving in 
Man is such a fool, why are we saving him? Poisoning themselves now Begging for our help Wow Husband in California My turn to ignore ya Don't say I didn't warn ya All the good girls go to hell Cause even got herself I want to welcome you back one last time and then just to close everything out here for the show if you'd like to send me an email about anything I've said on this show or anything you kind of want to just comment on you can send me an email at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com if you'd like to read in the written reviews on this episode or any of the past ones it's reviews of the dead at horrorreview.webnode.com if you'd like to become friends with me on Facebook, it's David Mishkin Garrett Jr. If you'd like to follow me on Twitter, it's Buckeye from Mish. Letterboxd, it's David OSU. The Instagram that I have is David OSU87. And then the Journey with a Cinephile also has its own Instagram, which is Journey with a Cinephile, all one word. Now, for all of those, I will also have the links in the show notes. Then what I last thing I would ask to do, if you could, is that whatever podcasting device you're listening to me on, if you could go ahead and hit subscribe so you never miss a new episode, as well as if there's an opportunity to rate and review, just so I can get an idea of what I'm doing that you like and what I'm doing that you don't like. And also, if you'd like to send any of the feedback for that, you can also send me an email as well, which would be greatly appreciated. So then for the next episode... So it's going to actually be the first one that's going to be in March is going to be back into my Centennial Club as the 1921 film I'm going to watch is going to be The Haunted Castle, one that I've never really seen or heard of, so I'm pretty excited to see what that one's all about. And then I think I'm going to pair it up with a movie that is getting its 2021 release called The Night. So those will be the two featured reviews, and I will have you know some mini reviews that I will sprinkle in there as well. I don't really think I have anything else I need to get you up to speed with. So what I will say in closing is that whatever you do today, I hope you have a great time doing it and you're safe out there. This is your tour guide of David Garrett Jr. signing off. It had been a wonderful evening and what I needed now to give it the perfect ending 